So have you ever gotten a gift that keeps on giving? The gift that keeps on giving. Maybe a, a beautiful piece of jewelry, maybe a, a fully loaded gift card, maybe a, a magazine subscription, maybe a, a membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. Because you know that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. In advertising terms, back in the early 1920s, RCA Victor was the first one to, to seem to put this concept of the gift that keeps on giving into their campaigns. An ad, one of their early ads ran like this. When you go to your Victor dealer to hear the three models of Victor radio, you will find them beautiful, compact, and soundly built. You will recognize them as the gift that keeps on giving, a royal gift at a very low price. 1920s ads, right? Hot Point Appliances, they knew exactly what mom was going to want under the tree for her in 1928. This was their holiday ad. Give mother what she really wants this season. This all-white Hot Point Electric Range, a gift that keeps on giving. Bless some guy's heart in 1928. He didn't go to Jared. He went to Hot Point. And I don't know if he scored too many points. In 1977, Kodak ran an ad for what they called their Trimline Instamatic 18 camera. And their ad line went like this, the gift that keeps on giving picture after picture. And then recently in modern times in 2016, Godiva, although I will say this, I read this week that at least on behalf of maybe the Belgium Prime Minister of Foreign Affairs, that it's Godiva. So, I don't know, take your pick. I don't know which one's right. I'll, I'll go with Godiva, since the guy in Belgium said it. Godiva chocolate had an ad that went like this, the box that keeps on giving. Now, I want you to know, I don't know what this means, because I have been to the bottom of a Godiva chocolate box often, and it's hard down there at the bottom, and, and you know what? It doesn't keep on giving. It stops at some point. I'm not sure what that ad meant. But what if there was a gift that did not keep on giving? What if there was a gift actually that didn't give at all? That didn't sound like much of a gift, does it? But there is a gift that, that seems to not give at all. A gift that seems to, to not keep giving. And actually what it gives is the most satisfying thing for your heart and your mind and your soul, even though it may seem like we're not getting anything. Well, what kind of gift is that? Well, let's find out. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. And Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him. So here's the setting. Jesus has been invited to lunch after church. And the guy that invited him was one of the church leaders. He wasn't the only one that was invited. There were some other people invited. And Jesus had just gotten through talking to those other guests. And he had told them this. He said, look, you guys need to quit being so pridefully arrogant. You need to quit fighting over the best seats in the house. And you need to learn what it means to have the necessity of humility. Now, why is humility a necessity? Why is it a necessity that every man and woman and boy and girl be humble and find humility? Well, several places, particularly in the New Testament, and at least one in the Old Testament, we see this word from God's truth. 
James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, the reason that humility is necessary is because only the penitent, only the humble, only the surrendering, only the yielding person can be made right with God. Humility is necessary. So Jesus tells these other guests, look, instead of fighting for the best seats, why don't you learn to be content even with the last seat for no other reason than you're deeply thankful that you got invited at all. Just be thankful and be humble. Now, there was two people that were not fighting for the best seat at lunch that day. One of them was, was Jesus. He wasn't fighting for that. And the other one was the church leader, the Pharisee, the lunch host. Well, he wasn't fighting because it was his house, right? I mean, he was going to sit at the head table, and he was going to sit in the head chair. So while Jesus is talking to these other people, he's probably thinking, well, I mean, that didn't have anything to do with me. I wasn't fighting for the best seat. But it was a merciful challenge Jesus was giving the other guest, and, and now he's going to give a merciful challenge to his host. Listen to verse 12. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. Now, let's first say what Jesus is not talking about here, okay? Jesus is not saying don't ever invite your family and friends over for dinner, okay? That's not what he's saying. And he's also not saying that if you ever run for office, that it's a sin to have a fundraising dinner, right? That, that's not the picture that he's painting here. What Jesus is saying is this, don't always and only invite just your family and your friends. Don't always and only just invite wealthy people to a fundraising dinner. Why? Well, because it might lead you to be on the dangerous path of self-centeredness and self-fulfillment. It might lead you to be on the path that would lead to you only pursuing the people that will make you comfortable or the people that will help you be more comfortable or the people that would create more comfort in your life. Now, somebody might say, well, why is that such a bad idea? I mean, I don't want to eat, eat food with people who make me uncomfortable. You know, I mean, I want to enjoy my food. I don't want to be around people who are uncomfortable. Jesus is not really giving a suggestion, though. So it's not enough for us to say, well, you know, I'd rather be around comfortable people. Jesus gives a command. It's pretty direct. He's not giving a suggestion of what we should do. If you're a Christian and the only pattern that you have in your life is to do it, let's just call it the good old boy way, you know? If, if that's the only pattern that you have, if that's your comfort zone, then Jesus is saying that's a danger zone. If the only pattern of life for you is that you only socially interact, you, you only associate with people who are like you, people who make you comfortable, people who can do something for you, people who will scratch your back because you scratch their back. If that's the only way you function, then Jesus is saying that we are acting in an opposite way of the gospel. Well, how do we know that? Well, let's just look at Jesus and even the early church. Rebecca McLaughlin is a writer and speaker. She said this, 
Jesus broke down every religious, racial, and cultural boundary, and the early church pushed Jews to mix with Gentiles, barbarians with Scythians, citizens with slaves. You see, if we only and always casually associate socially or or practically in any way and on purpose just with people who are like us, people who kind of have the the same kind of background, they kind of look like us, they think like us, they believe like us, they have the the same kind of money or or the same kind of material possessions. If that's the only way that we interact and associate with other people, then we're acting in a way that is opposite of Jesus. That's why we go to Hall Avenue. Preacher always tells us we don't act like Jesus. But this is the command that Jesus gives, right? That, that this is what we're called to do. He commands us to make it our pattern to not just live in our comfort zone, to not just invite people to our Super Bowl party who we like being around or, or who might do something for us. And the reason why is because it'll put us again on a path that might dangerously leave us to self-centeredness and self-fulfillment. But someone might ask, what's wrong with being fulfilled? It's a big deal. Well, nothing is wrong with being fulfilled and and finding fulfillment, but self-fulfillment is different. If self-fulfillment is your primary goal, then you are primarily proud. So what? What's the big deal with that? We just saw a moment ago, right? God is opposed to the proud. So, so at the end of the day, you, you really don't want the God of the universe against you, opposed to you, working against your ways. Jesus says, don't let it be your practice to only invite the people that make you comfortable or who can do something for you. Now, let me just give an idea of, of what this would look like in, in real practical life. I read a story about a lady named Sharon Randall. Sharon had a a very difficult year. Her mother died. Her father-in-law, they had to put him into a nursing home. Her husband got cancer. It was in the middle of very serious long-term treatment. And, And as all of these things played out, then Thanksgiving came. And their normal family tradition, the normal family meal, was going to be completely different because of what had happened that year. And so Sharon did something that she had never done before. She invited people outside of her family to come over for Thanksgiving. And then the next year, they expanded the guest list a little bit and and invited some other people that were even beyond who they invited before. This is what she said. If your family has changed and you need a new tradition, look around. I love this. You're not alone. Invite someone to join you for Thanksgiving or volunteer to help serve at a church or shelter or community dinner. In other words, don't just invite people based on your comfort zone. Don't just invite people based on on what they may or may not be able to do for you. Look around and see that there are others that you could serve. Jesus is challenging his host. I mean, he's been invited over And he challenges him, and he challenges his guest list, you know. But he doesn't leave him hanging. He he gives him some invitation ideas. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verse 13. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. 
Now, if we were there, we, we might see some steam coming out of this guy's ears at this point, all right? He might have been thinking, oh, let me get this right. So I invite you to lunch, and the first thing you do is insult my guest. You tell them they're being arrogant and prideful for fighting over the best seat. And now, now you're rebuking me for inviting them to begin with. And now you're telling me that who I should have invited, I should have invited the guys from Finley Park in Columbia. And I should have invited people who I'm going to have to carry into my home because I don't have a ramp for them to use to get in here themselves. You're telling me to invite people who can't even see how I've decorated my home with every idea from Pinterest and all of this fancy food that I've put on the table. You're telling me to invite people who cannot appreciate who I am and what I've done. For this man, Jesus' guest list was not something that he'd be pursuing. Not only were these not the kind of people that he would not invite over for lunch, he wouldn't have anything to do with them anywhere. He would steer clear from them if he saw them in the streets. He would stay away from them because in his mind, these folks were poor. They were physically poor and spiritually poor. They were lame and crippled. They were spiritually lame and crippled and they were physically lame and crippled. They were spiritually blind and they were physically blind. These were folks that he didn't want to have anything to do with. And if he was honest, he would have said, too, that that type of guest list, those type of people, they're all like that because his religious rules tell him because of their sin. That they're poor and they're crippled and they're lame and they're blind because of their sin or maybe their parents' sin or maybe somebody else around them, their sin. So he would have nothing to do with them. He would see them as sinners, and this list would have not been the list that he liked to hear. It would have created some offense. But notice Jesus is not just asking him to adjust his guest list. Jesus is really saying, hey, you need to reevaluate how you make and keep and find friends. What is it that you call a friend? In other words, what he's really doing is he's asking this guy to look at his own heart. Stephen Cole writes, We've all met people who don't take a shower often enough. They're difficult to be close to because of the stench. Listen to this. The same is true of people who don't use the word of God daily to cleanse the crud of sin out of their lives. Wow. Wow. I mean, let's be honest, though. Have, you know, sometimes that's us, all right? Sometimes we're the smelly Christians, you know? But, but we know this moment, right? We're around someone who's a professing Christian, and they grate on our nerves. Why? Because of this. There, there's a stench of arrogance and pride and whining and complaining and fear and worry and just about every other emotion, and it seems to never go away. And it's because the Word of God is not daily cleaning them. They're not running to God's Word. Stephen Cole goes on, You must develop the habit of taking God's Word and letting it expose and scrub the dirt out of your own heart. Don't read the Word with the thought, Well, my wife or husband really needs to apply this. Don't think, I wish my kids would take this verse to heart. Rather, he says, read it and pray, Lord, confront me with my sin and cleanse it out of my life. Expose my religious hypocrisy. Show me my selfish pride. Reveal how I use people rather than love them. 
fill me with your holy love. See, the normal everyday habit of this guy who invited Jesus over for lunch and, and really the folks that, that he invited over with him, their normal everyday habit was to see people as something that could do something for them instead of just loving people. That wasn't their habit. Years after this lunch, there was a, another gathering of church leaders a different kind of group of church leaders, though. These church leaders believed in God, but they also followed after God's son, Jesus. And they got together and they had this question they were trying to find an answer to. And the question was this, what is the most important thing the church should do? It sounds like a pretty big question, right? What is the most important thing the church should do? And so what was their answer? Well, if you read through Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, you find out that the answer to their question was this. You know what? We need to get the gospel right. That's the most important thing that we need to do as a church. We need to get the gospel right. Here we have this, this moment in the early church where they're saying, what is it that we need to do first and most? And they say, you know what? We need to get the story of Jesus right. We need to get the good news about Jesus right. Jesus died on the cross for sin. He rose on the third day. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He ascended into heaven. And Jesus is still saving and rescuing and redeeming condemned sinners. Jesus is still giving his salvation salvation to men and women and boys and girls who are lost and without hope and far, far, far separated from God. They said, we need to get that right. We need to be sure we're on the same page with that. And so they agreed on that. And then in this big moment in the history of the church, they quickly agreed on something else. They, they didn't take long. They, they agreed in, in one other thing and they did it pretty fast. And they agreed on it and they made sure that the Apostle Paul knew about it because Paul was out all over the place sharing the gospel. And so the first thing was we're going to agree on the gospel. And what was the second thing they agreed on? This is what they said to Paul, Galatians 2.10. They only asked us to remember the poor. So here we are in this, this powerful moment in the history of the church, which by the way, this moment in the history of the church is the only reason this church exists. If the early church didn't get the gospel right, we're not saved. There's no Holland Avenue. So we rejoice in the faithfulness of the early church, making sure that they got the gospel right and that they did not stray from the message of Jesus. And so they agree on the gospel, and then immediately they agree to remember the poor. They didn't agree to remember the wealthy. They didn't agree to remember to use the same style of music or the same style of clothes or the same denomination no, they agreed on the gospel. And then they agreed to remember the poor. They remembered to love those who are in need. I've shared this thought with you before. I can't ever get this guy's name right. I'm going to take a shot at it. Tecmito Adegamo. If it's wrong, I'll find out from him. Here's the thought. We cannot preach good news and be bad news. We can't, the things have to, to match. The early church said, you know, we need, we need to preach the good news to the poor and we need to be the good news to the poor. We, we can't do the opposite. So where would this idea come from? Where would the idea come from in the early church 
that they should agree on the gospel and they should agree to love and serve the needs of the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Where, where would they get that kind of idea? This is where they got that idea. They were saved. When they sat in these meetings, they, they were thinking somewhere in their minds, I once, I was lost. I once was blind. I once was spiritually crippled and spiritually lame. I once was spiritually poor. In fact, I once was spiritually dead. But now, because of Jesus, by the grace of God, now I'm found. Now I can see. Now I am spiritually alive. Now I am rich in Christ. Their motivation for remembering the poor was because they remembered they were poor. They were in need of Jesus. There was a, a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And one day he met Jesus, invited Jesus to come over to his house and on that day, Zacchaeus' life radically changed because he believed in Jesus and he surrendered to Jesus. And what was the first thing that he did? Luke chapter 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And what did Jesus say in response? Listen to verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today... Salvation has come to this house. So Jesus said that Zacchaeus was saved because he gave half of what he owned to the poor. No, that's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is this, that the gospel had such a radical influence on the heart of Zacchaeus that he was changed in such a way that he was doing the exact opposite of what he would have normally done. See, the tax collectors in that day, they, they, were, they were downright evil. They were far beyond corrupt. They were greedy. They were liars. They were cheaters. The last thing that Zacchaeus would have ever done was give his money to the poor, especially half of what he owned. But see, here's what happened. Zacchaeus, he, he met Jesus, and Jesus saved him. And Zacchaeus, his heart changed. Something was different. He went from hating those who had nothing, hating those that he could take advantage of, to loving them and serving them. See, that's what the gospel does. See, our salvation should stir us to always look at our guest list. Our salvation to stir us to always look at how we speak and talk and act toward other people. And we should be the kind of people to the physically poor and the spiritually poor and the physically crippled and the spiritually crippled and the physically blind and the spiritually blind. We would be the people that would show love because we once were blind, but now we see. We once were crippled, but now we walk. We once were poor, but now we're rich. We once were lost, but now we're found. Charles Spurgeon said this, If you do not help the one that you see has the greatest need, I am afraid the love of God dwelleth not in you. Hmm. A little strong there, but pretty clear. But I have to say, I, I need to defend the Pharisee for a moment. 
I need to defend the, the lunch host, the, the church leader, because truth is he did actually invite a poor person to lunch. He did. And who was that poor person? Well, Jesus. I mean, Jesus is in his early 30s. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't own a home. He, he doesn't even have a credit score. I mean, there, there's nothing, you know. So the, the very nature even of the, the character of the, of the life of Jesus in an earthly sense is such that it should cause us to think through this moment. Now, that doesn't mean that, that what it should cause us to do is say, oh, the Christian way is to be lazy and unemployed and have a bad credit score. No, that's not what it is. But it does mean this, that, that when we begin to think about our life and when we begin to think that Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, then it should change our guest list. It should change how we think. It should change our interaction. It should change how we associate with others. If Jesus broke down all of those barriers and all of those boundaries, if the early church broke down all of those barriers and all of those boundaries, then why do we think 2,000 years later we should do the opposite of what our Lord did and what the early church did? We should do the same. Why? Because we've been saved. Because we've been rescued. We should remember the, the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind because we too once were just like them. But why should we run away for pride and favoritism? Why, why should we run toward humility and serving others? Listen to what Jesus says to his host next, verse 14. And if you invite that crowd, if that becomes your guest list, you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. Jesus says you'll be blessed, you'll be happy, you'll be content if you will humble yourself and love people instead of just looking at them for what they can do for you or for how important they are. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that we should avoid important people? No, not at all. Not at all. I love how my, my friend Quincy used to say it. He said, you know what? The down and outers, they need Jesus. And he said, you know who else needs Jesus? The up and outers. <laughs> the people who don't have anything and the people who have everything, they both need Jesus. No, it doesn't mean that we ignore any group. It, it just means that if we spend all of our energy trying to impress people who might be able to do something for us, maybe help our kids get into a, a certain school or maybe help us get our passport quicker than everybody else or whatever it may be, if we spend all of our life trying to impress people that might be able to do something for us, Jesus says we will not be happy. We will not be blessed and we will not be content. The opposite will happen from what we think is going to happen. Now, what kind of contentment are we talking about? Luther put it this way. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. That's, that's our world. It's always been our world. will always be our world until Jesus returns. So though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. We will be content. Why? For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. See, the kind of contentment we're talking about is the kind of contentment that whispers in our ear. You know what? God's triumph has already happened in you. 
And his kingdom is forever. So you are saved and you are loved, so you are good. At any given moment, because God's truth through Jesus has triumphed in the heart and the mind and the soul of a believer, that believer can say, I'm saved, I'm loved, I'm good. And nothing can change that because of who Jesus is. That's contentment. But that's a contentment that we can't even really explain. See, for a believer, the reward of inviting the the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, that reward will not come from the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind. At least not primarily. You may not get your name in the church bulletin or the church newsletter or the Sunday Connections. You may not get a, a bronze plaque in the fellowship hall because you donated some money so that some chairs could be bought and that one day a poor person would sit in that chair at garage giveaway. Now, you may not get the kind of recognition and reward that, that you think you might get in this world. No, the reward comes from somewhere else where Jesus goes on. This is what he says to the man. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And at first glance, this sounds a little crummy, all right? Let's see if we can kind of put it in practical terms. You know, imagine the, you know, the boss comes in and says, Dwight, we're not going to pay you anymore, Okay. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to take all the money that we would normally pay you and and we're just going to kind of put it in this account and then in 35 years when you retire, we'll give you all of that money. That doesn't sound like much of a deal, right? Well, that's not really what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying when he brings up the resurrection is he is pressing these guys to think about eternal life. See, these guys at this lunch, they thought, that if they would fight for the right seat and sit in the best seat and impress the right person and keep all of their religious rules just the way the church said you were supposed to keep them, they thought that would get them into heaven. And Jesus at lunch is pulling the tablecloth from underneath that foolish idea. He's pressing them to think about what real eternal life is. And mercy, Jesus is, is showing us that as believers... That when it comes to this life, we need to remember that sometimes we do things when we cannot be paid back now. He's showing us that the resurrection that he purchased so that our resurrection would be purchased, he's showing us that that should change our behavior and it should change how we make decisions. John Piper writes this, Jesus told us to invite it to our homes, people who cannot pay us back in this life. This is a radical call for us to look hard at our present lives to see if they are shaped by the hope of the resurrection. Let me ask a couple of questions. Do we make decisions on the basis of gain in this world or gain in the next? Do we take risk for love's sake that can only be explained as wise if there is a resurrection. So just a little personal heart resume time. Just looking at your own life. Let's, let's just look this past week, all right? We don't have to go back farther now. Let's just look this past week and thinking toward this coming week. Does your attitude reveal that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? 
Do your decisions reveal that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Does your behavior reveal that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Does your guest list reveal that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that that resurrection has something to do with you, actually that that is the hope of your life? Is it seen in how we think and what we do and how we act and who we invite? 150, 160 years ago, J.C. Ryle said this, so living, we shall look forward to death with calmness. Let's just all agree that sounds weird, okay? And yet that's exactly what the scripture screams to us. We are saved, we are loved, we are good. We should be calmer. If we're in Christ, we should be calmer. We shall look forward to death with calmness. We shall feel that there remains some better portion for us beyond the grave. And then he says this, so living, we shall take patiently all that we have to bear in this world. Trial, losses, disappointments, ingratitude will affect us little. I told Colin a minute ago, I love that little bridge part. Um, th this offering that they sang him at, this offering, it's just, it's so little. This, this little bit of praise, this little bit of worship, it's so little. I love that line. Listen, the trials, the losses, the disappointments, the ingratitude, because we are saved and loved and good, they should affect us little. And, and let's just confess, I'll confess for me, they affect us way too much. They do. I worry about your opinion much more than I should. And, and, we, and we get little too upset about the trials and the troubles of life. And that doesn't mean that we're bad people. It doesn't mean that we're sinners. It just means that Jesus is always calling us, I have saved you. I love you. I promise you are good and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Let this affect you little because I have so much that I have done and prepared for you. It's completely different math, and we, we seem to never get into the equation. And then Ralph says this, we shall not look for reward here in this poor world. We shall feel that all will be rectified one day and that the judge of all the earth will do right. Listen, let us love the up and outers and let us love the down and outers. Let us love and remember the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, those that are physically and spiritually, all of those things. And let us do it with eagerness and let us do it with consistency. Let it be a part of who we are. Let us leave our comfort zone and step into the zone of our salvation as we love others. And let us do all of those things because the judge will do right. He will. He will.